Welcome back to Reformed Millennials, the podcast where finances, economic trends, and sports intersect. Cam and Joel help listeners better invest their time and money. Also, it's important for listeners to understand that investing in equities, fixed income instruments, and or alternative asset classes involves substantial risk of loss. Any action you may take as a result of the information presented in this podcast is your own responsibility. The information in this podcast is presented as a general educational, informational, and entertainment resource only. While Joel is registered to provide investment advice, have any ownership or interest in the specific securities discussed in this podcast. Joel, happy Friday. It's a way better one than last week. Yeah. Orders are on a four-game streak. Morale is up in the city. It's a little bit colder, feeling a little bit more like Edmonton. Yeah, minus December. nine this morning. I was freezing my... It was cold. Yeah, well, but it car. feels right, though. Yeah, this is what it's supposed to be like. Exactly. I want a colder winter. I need to hit my depression at the right time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> longer summers, colder winters. That's what I signed up for when especially I was born when, here. Especially when I always feel like when you get that, like we're both golfers, and I always feel like when you get that extra couple weeks in the fall, you're like, oh, this is awesome. Like, it's still good to play. But now we've had this stretch of like seven or eight weeks where it's, you can't really do anything outside mm-hmm. for a, like a huge length of time because it's not that warm. But then there's no snow, so you can't go like do the classic like sledding or whatever you might be doing with your family. Yeah, we're just have weird in between time. Yeah, you couldn't really go skating at all. But oh yeah, everything's indoors. You, could, you can yeah. go for walks with your family, which is lovely. Eh, yeah, sure. I mean you won't, but I can see why <laughs> someone would. I mean, we did go for lunch yesterday, and we drove there. It was a whole whopping three blocks. Mm-hmm. Pathetic. <laughs> Really, it was. Um, That's Alberta, though. Yeah, hundred percent, and just us in general. Um, I'm coming in to December a much happier person. Given I was going to say, big wrap up to November. Holy! So, for those that weren't paying attention or don't care, I'm going to let you know something. Uh, that was the greatest performance in a month for a sixty forty North American portfolio of equities and bonds, which is. All the way back to the 1800s. That is insane. That is insane. From what is inarguably like some pretty pessimistic data in October through a November rally of, I mean, there wasn't really much other than, I think we're good. I think we're going to get a soft landing. So prices, in my my view, Mm -hmm. have gone from recession for sure, first quarter or second quarter 24, Mm -hmm. to... Sure, but that means we're cutting rates, and now they're pricing everything to perfection. And in my opinion, I think for anybody kind of positioning right here, it's clear that bonds have rallied way too far, mm-hmm. and equities, if if we're getting rate cuts, if um, earnings come in at the numbers that they are suggesting they're going to come in, mm-hmm. are still fairly valued. And um, basically what that means to me is that if you're going to be positioning here, I think that the take the rally in bonds, maybe walk 
and then you have some some interesting opportunities elsewhere positioning wise and so one thing just to clarify or for listeners and maybe for me too like when you're talking like from this perspective that you're giving soft landing like are you talking about north america in general Mm -hmm. yeah because i mean canada if you were to separate canada from that Mm -hmm. i mean the united states is 11 times the size of canada yep in terms of population their market is I think 20 times the size of ours. We're a so, rounding error. Yeah, basically doesn't matter. We're, we're effectively a, a community in the Bronx. I don't know. It's not really <laughs> a big deal. However, it does matter to us because the majority of people who do live in Canada are way overweight Canada mm-hmm. and we matter. So um, yeah, when I'm, when I'm, I'm usually lumping everything together, yeah. but the, the most recent rally is a relief for anybody in my industry, no doubt. I do think that a lot of people were caught off guard with the prevailing narrative being pessimistic, being super um, positioned towards recession, mm-hmm. the fact that higher for longer was going to occur. And then I get all of these, whether it be a, a real estate symposium or a, um, a bunch of economists from banks talking about their, their, their forecasts for 2024, and that's what we're getting right now is a bunch of forecasts. Yeah. And a lot of them are suggesting that we're going to see a bunch of cuts next year. And that rallied the market, rallied everything. The mm-hmm. duration assets, so technology stocks, um, when you think about a duration asset, I'm talking about companies that have a long runway, are growing really quickly, and are multiplied by their their earnings, or their rather not their earnings, their revenues. Yeah. So not necessarily profitability, but revenues. And those companies did incredibly well. The XLK or the, the technology sector, actually broke out to all-time highs mm-hmm. in November, mm-hmm. while the Dow still hasn't gotten there. I think it's within 2%, and the S&P 500 hasn't quite eclipsed its all-time high. We are knocking on those. The TSX lagging quite significantly because the banks and energy has lagged. So I guess at the end of the day, I think it's very important to take a look more so when you're approaching whether or not you should be buying, selling, whether or not you should be in the market or not. Uh, the, the idea that positioning within the market is more important than economic feelings, how mm-hmm. you're feeling in, in the industry. When, it, when you see that consumers and actors are polling at historic lows in terms of sentiment, they think that everything's falling apart. Yeah. That's usually a great time to start investing your money. <laughs> And that's exactly what we gotten through from August through October. Yeah. And where that puts us today is in a in a spot where it's a little bit harder to put money to work, but it feels like we're going into a second phase. And a lot of the people that I follow are like Andy Constance, one of my my favorite sentiment because he will be somebody who will flip flop week to week, and I respect that because he will change his opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, there's people that are very dogmatic and stay stick to their knitting. It's way easier to be wrong that, or way easier to be right that way too. Oh yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. To stay consistent or stay constant or, or relevant with your take. Right. So Andy <laughs> used to be a he's an ex Bridgewater guy. He's a Goldman Sachs ex Goldman Sachs hedge fund manager. Now he just manages his own money because he's rich. Um, and he's got this newsletter. It's uh, Damp Spring, and you got to pay to be a part of it. But I recommend people go and check it out. And he will flip-flop day to day. He shows his positioning and he kind of, he likes to pay a lot of attention to treasury um, auctions, which is basically the funding of the United States government. And he can gauge 
where money is going to flow based on how good those auctions are. Right. And I find it just super interesting to see how accurate it becomes. Mm-hmm. But he he flipped in October and you could it was unbelievable how perfect that timing was. And now he's sw- swung back the other way and he's saying equities look overvalued here. Mm. Bonds are way overvalued here. And he'd rather be in commodities and in cash. Now, that is not a, a recommendation. It's just one guy out there showing you how an opinion can be like as volatile as. Yeah, which else. is crazy. Yeah. And not only that, with market rips like this, where you have um, sentiment change so drastically in a matter of two weeks, it's mm. it. It really, to me, sends a, a, a message to investors that you got to stay invested more so than trying to time any of this. Right. And um, because if you did, you'd be in a way better position than if you were to put your money back to work when things start to feel better. Because right now you're like, oh, okay, we're getting rate cuts. Things seem a little calmer. Yeah. Everyone's happier. Let's put our money to work. Well, now we're at all-time highs. Good job. Mm-hmm. You just sold after 2022 because the market went down yeah. 30% or 20% depending on where you're invested. And then you miss an entire rally back. You don't have it. You've lost on a million dollar portfolio. You were down, call it 150 grand. Yeah. And now you're back to a million 50, million 60, and you're out 200 grand. Yeah. You missed the 10 days. Yeah. And literally. Yeah. And you're what? You feel better about it? No, you're just poorer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, th- I think that's important. Like, I th- it, know we've talked about that sentiment before about cons- less concern over having your money at work or not and more so about where it's invested and making sure that you're either if you're actively trading yourself or who you're working with making sure that you are open to changing that opinion like you said and i think because again the the information highway era that we are it's even more likely for sentiment to change in a short amount of time given the 24-hour news cycle that we are in yeah so phase one was basically a non-consensus rally. Phase two, people are starting to lean in a little bit more, mm-hmm. but I, I believe we're about to go through this wall of worry. Mm-hmm. Walls of worry are choppy, and you usually get a decent time to buy in. I'm kind of in that camp at the moment. We were able to buy these like 6.3 to 6.5 RBC bail-in bonds, and in a matter of two weeks, they went all the way down to 5% from 6.3, 6.5. And that's largely just due to sentiment. Mm-hmm. I think that when you see snaps like that, there's oftentimes the other way too. So it'll be interesting to see if that actually occurs. Um, we are going through what would be considered a pretty quiet time in the market through December. Um, yeah. I don't believe we get a Fed meeting. We'd get one in December, but we won't get one until February. Mm. They they take a, a dirt nap. I shouldn't say dirt nap. I should say they, we're, they take a nap during January. So, um, I believe that that'll cause there to be a little less um, volatility. In is that is that because and did they take that break because of the, I guess, uniqueness of this time of year? Mm, no idea. It, no. Okay. I don't know what the rhyme is. Yeah. January sucks in general. Honestly, they're probably just hungover. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who? Honestly, I don't. Honest, I don't know. I don't know. I was gonna say one thing about this. You talked about the Santa Claus rally, I think maybe another episode or two ago mm-hmm. and kind of heading into the Christmas season. I think just separating the, the stock market and then the consumer and our day-to-day spend and our day-to-day economy versus the forward-looking economy of the stock market or the forward-looking sentiment of the stock market. Is, is there any sense of this, I guess, 
to your point about maybe having the sentiment that maybe we're at all time highs and it's we we've kind of if you haven't been involved you you might have missed it. Mm-hmm. Was this was anything in relation to what November and I guess well, what November can represent in terms of preparing for the holiday season and kind of pulling the wool over people's eyes in terms of consumer spending and and general sentiment from the individuals because I I think what we're what I want to get to is in Canada, there's been news stories over the past, I would say, week or two, contraction of GDP quarter over quarter. And there's continuing, we talked about like Walmart and the Canadian Tires and all of these big, big retail centers noting contractions as well on their side of things. So like all of this information that we were probably talking about three months ago, two months ago, is now coming to light in terms of supporting the sentiment of rate cuts in 2024, because we are spending is going down, debts are going are going up High, yeah. on a on a household basis. Layer on top of that, the pending housing I'm going to say crisis, but housing decision for a lot of individuals in this country in yeah. terms of renewing and at new interest rates, etc. And I think there's lots of pieces out there to talk about. There is economists saying i know how much you love the term economists mm-hmm. who is they're an economist. so right all the time but essentially that w- there is no way that there cannot be rate cuts in 2024 as a result of the data coming from the i guess consumer spending side of things and then what that means from an interest rate perspective on the biggest market in canada being our housing yeah i this is where the separation between canada and us is interesting yeah in my opinion anyway i I view the U.S. as still being insanely strong. Credit card data and spend through Cyber Monday was very, very robust. Yeah, records on Friday and Monday. And it was driven by a reduction in prices of online goods Mm. because there were historic discounts. Are there discounts because they have too much inventory? Yeah, probably. Mm -hmm. They over-ordered in 2021, 2022, for sure, no doubt. But still record spend. That's still record revenue and GDP. you contrast that with Canada, and it's not exactly the same sentiment. And uh, this is a really tough tight and tight rope to walk for TIFF, Macklin, our, our Bank of Canada head. Yeah. I'm concerned because if the U.S. wrecking ball reappears, mm-hmm. the market is going to not like that very much. If the United States continues to see strength, and I, I'm interested to hear how the December meeting goes. I believe that there's going to be it's possible that the U.S. could go up or raise rates again. Mm. I think it's po- super possible. I don't think it can even happen in Canada. Mm. And that causes a U.S. dollar, Canadian dollar uh-uh. right? Yeah, problem. Mm-hmm. And if the Canadian dollar starts to slide even further, if oil prices continue to stay 60, 70, and our banks are under stress, because yesterday we had Royal Bank and we had um, CIBC. Uh, the day before that, I believe we had Nova Scotia. And there's layoffs. There's what looks like um, a lot of stress in our banks. And I think that's because of the the rate environment we're in. And the, the, the nature of the Canadian economy is such that we're dependent on an industry, real estate industry, that is under a significant amount of stress. Like it is difficult to see any sort of action there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
whether you're talking to commercial brokers or actual real estate agents themselves, I don't see there to be the same type of sentiment that there was in 2021, 2022, obviously. And the affordability is gone. It's gone. Like there's just a very specific group of people that can afford a house right now. And even then they got to stretch so much. And not to mention the psychological side of things. A hundred percent. It's like, well, I want this, or I I knew I was able to get this based off of what the environment was like. Exactly. And you've used that term like anchoring to, to what you had or what you could have. Yeah. Everyone anchors to all time highs. Always. Mm -hmm. Well, my house was in 2021 worth a million. Now it's only worth 850. I can't sell. Mm -hmm. And that's absolutely how people to refinance. Yeah. At so what I paid, which was 550. It's just very, very challenging. Mm -hmm. So where are we going? I'm again, kind of like Andy Constant, you have to be um, willing to change your opinion quickly. Um, Staying invested is very important. Timing anything is next to impossible. Mm -hmm. But positioning um, is malleable. You can move from asset class to asset class. You can move from from those types of sectors that perhaps are under pressure. Mm -hmm. I think that there's value there. So I, I, I saw a clip, I'm not sure when it was. So I feel like it was from in the last couple of weeks but it was a open mic time of some sort between I think cabinet ministers and Christia Freeland was, was answering questions. And the question was asked, can you please give us the real GDP growth numbers for Q1, Q2, Q3? And it was just like the most, the most political clip ever. (laughs) The answer was never given, but there was a back and forth for about four minutes. Was she on your fence? (laughs) <laughs> she was she was no she was definitely on one side of the fence which is i'm not answering this question oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> ever so like those are yeah it's like you said i i think there probably is going to be more and more of the again 24-hour news cycle stories where we're, we're getting hit with data saying you know we're in a recession in in canada already there's a lot of indicators towards this interest rates have to be cut, et cetera. There's going to be, this story is going to continue to evolve over the next two quarters before I think we really maybe see something happen in the the spring, summer of 2024. And TIFF is going to probably sit on his hands until he has to move. 100%. Wait to the last Like he's just going to wait for refinancings to get really stressed. The the glut of them, right? We've talked about before where, you know, whether or not those stats are completely accurate or not. I think, you know, a lot of CMHC data in terms of in 2024, at some point there being you know a heavy percentage of of mortgages that are that are coming up for renewal. He'd rather so. strain our banks than strain the consumer. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I do believe that the that Canada is going to have to issue some bonds here. They're going to have to figure out a way to shift the consumer debt to the balance sheet of the government and um, start to help out what they've largely created. <laughs> yeah. So um, that'll be a talking point for the next year. But yeah. Um, someone who's not financially stressed. Do I get into Mark Cuban? Yes. So QB, who, um, for those who don't know who I'm talking about, Mark Cuban, the owner of the Dallas Mavs, the tech mogul. Yeah. The, uh, the angel investor on Shark Tank, mm-hmm. s- someone who's incredibly loud on Twitter. Mm-hmm. If you're somebody who still uses that app, it he is a polarizing guy. I'm I'm always interested in whatever he's saying. Mm-hmm. I think that he's fast to adopt or adapt and and adopt. He's 
I mean, gosh, he's one of the bigger people involved in crypto, but he's made his money traditionally. Seems to have like, he's the kind of guy that rem- like I think about when people say know enough to be dangerous. I feel like he knows enough about everything to be dangerous. Like he, yeah. his, his ability to comment, like obviously he's got a history of, of making a lot of good business deals, obviously with his Shark Tank, obviously coming to the you know, commercial success, they can, you can obviously see that in, in practice, but obviously he got there from, from making a lot of calculated risks and maybe some really, really risky bets too, but made his money early on a in broadcast, broadcast sale and then purchased the Mavs, I think for a couple hundred million. Mm-hmm. So he sold broadcast.com in 99 for 5.7 billion, which is not bad. <laughs> By 20, yeah. 2002, broadcast was was down 87%. Mm-hmm. So it would be Timing. a decent time to sell. And um, he did a very good job. Mm-hmm. I, I actually believe he's doing something fairly similar here. Yeah, I don't think he's calling the top in Shark Tank by any means. <laughs> but I do believe he's, he's calling had, the top. He's had enough of Kevin O'Leary's voice, probably. Absolutely, <laughs> he is. And I have, too. I haven't watched that show in a decade, probably, either. <laughs> um, it's my opinion, though, that he's absolutely calling the top in sports valuations, at least for now. And that's I will, fine. Yeah, and I will, I will say, like, based off of the information that we've read, the, the there appears, anyways, to be some question as to how much he's selling. So the valuation of the Mavs is reported at three point five billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Not a bad return again, um, but <laughs> that he is giving up majority control. So whether that be fifty one percent or whether that be eighty percent or mm-hmm. whatever it might be, I think that's still maybe being negotiated. But to your point, I think the this indication of or looking at his history of of maybe getting out or selling when he's analyzing to say this is my best return on investment or this is a good return on investment. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's definitely telling, especially for someone that you made up me at the point the other day when we were talking, like texting back and forth, was that he is someone who would be the last owner you'd think would sell. Yeah, his Just identity's in, wrapped up in the maps. 100%. Like, that's what most people would identify him with if you're a sports fan. You wouldn't necessarily think of his, obviously, his business acumen as much. Like, oh, well, all owners are rich and successful. Yeah, I know Mark Cuban because of broadcast.com. No, you don't. Nobody does. Exactly. But he he is very, very visible in the basketball scene and in the sports scene in general. Mm -hmm. And it always has his fingers in in kind of everything. And he's, I think he was very brash, like when he was younger and first took over. Like he was getting fined, obviously, for yelling at refs and being on the court and stuff like that. And he was kind of had that, that bravado that rubbed people the wrong way. Yeah. And now largely he's moved back into the, like he runs basketball operations for the Dallas Mavericks. He's actually going to, the deal apparently is very unique in the fact he's actually staying on with full control of basketball operations, even after he sells majority share. And so obviously he still wants to be very involved in that side of things. But to your point, I think this is this is an indication, the fact that someone who's that involved, who's been so visibly invested in his sports team, that would say, I'm cashing out to a degree. And why would that be? And I don't think it's because he made a great return. I don't think it's because his the valuation went from two hundred and eighty five million what he bought it at to three point five billion. Like that's not why he's getting out of this thing. It has nothing to do with like, um, I made my 10x, I'm getting out. Mm-hmm. I there's probably it's probably multifaceted. 100. percent I believe it's it's probably because he sees the writing on the wall. 
and it with with regards to where we are for sports fr- franchise valuations and, and what those f- valuations are based on which is tv revenue <laughs> and that's something that has been a prevailing topic on this podcast for the last year and it's likely that they're going to go through a restructuring and it's going to be painful for a while mm-hmm. in the same way that it was painful for the music industry in the same way that it was painful for newspapers in the same way that it was painful for all of the other old media yeah for sports it's going to be painful and you're going to see it in salary caps you're going to see it in valuations of the teams and i would venture to guess that you're going to get a little bit more turnover i mean mm-hmm. we have seen a lot of turnover actually in sporting franchise franchises totally. and for those that are a little bit more savvy and don't and aren't we'll call it uh, the patriarchs of massive dynasties like walmart mm-hmm. you're probably going to see people turning over their teams because they feel as though the glory days of yesteryear is mm-hmm. over and you can now sell it to these mega wealthy people yeah. it's actually interesting to go and look at the average net worth of the owners of mm-hmm. major sporting franchises mm-hmm. they're not the families you think are they are the new entrants are yeah the new ones are right for sure. where like jeff bezos's net worth goes up and down more than in a day than mark cuban's which is to to say that I don't think people quite grasp how much richer he is than Mark Cuban. Mm. They assume they're like the same. They're not even yeah. remotely close. Mm-hmm. And that is who's coming in and buying. This is the exit liquidity for these these people that are more, they're trying to build up to where those, those families are. Sure. Um, and yeah, it's my opinion that they're seeing a, a peak here. And, and Vance Spencer had a really good tweet. And at the, the back end of the tweet, he says, only 58% of Gen Z say they enjoy sports demographically at a disadvantage versus other trends, which would be people being on the internet and, and watching different things, the fracturing mm. of media, the fracturing of, of society. And the, as so long as YouTube continues to take market share, mm-hmm. and when you go on YouTube, I'm subscribed to 302 channels on YouTube. <laughs> Rain, the, the topics that that ranges is kind of mind boggling. Mm-hmm. Sports isn't at the top. I mean, I guess those amateur golfers would be up there, but yeah, that does speak to where we're headed. Mm-hmm. And I think Mark Cuban sees that. And I, th- I think to your point about it taking a long time to get back, I think that's what it's going to be. It's going to be an awakening, especially for these. It's like, I'm interested to know about the NFL too. I know we've kind of talked about it being a unicorn and never going to be affected, et cetera. But like there is much tied to yeah, law, law of large numbers though. It's hard to multiply for sure. It is. Yeah. And so I think NFL, NBA, NBA specifically, I think their rise to prominence in terms of business or franchise valuations and player salaries and all that stuff, I think that is going to be, I think they're the most exposed, if I can say it that way, and in terms of like how much it, of the valuation of their teams is based off of their broadcast rights. capabilities and rights. They are a global brand, which I think definitely helps in in that manner. But I think just through this restructuring, I feel like there's going to be, like you said, a dip. And then I think there's going to be a longer run to get back to where they might be while they figure that out and how best to market themselves. And this is going to be, like, the thing I thought about while you were speaking there, too, is, like, who's done this or how who who's already been 
delving into changing the way that they broadcast or the way that they distribute their rights. And I thought of like English Premiership soccer specifically with, I, I'm not sure how it works obviously in Europe 100% in terms of like local Isn't it Star or, or whatever? Sky Sports, Sky I think, Sports does, does a lot of the distribution, but I just don't know what, what their platforms for that. But I know like here in, in Canada, for example, like growing up, it was always like TSN had rights for a while. And then I know Sportsnet kind of had, had developed like Sportsnet World and you could have a subscription to that specifically through, you know, TELUS or Rogers or whatever and watch. They've now moved to like DAZN or DAZN or however you're supposed to say it. And it's like completely like unless you have that subscription, you are not able to watch a game on anything. Like there's some like Champions League and like some specific things that get shown on on Sportsnet or TSN or on on a mainstream network through cable. But if you have if you're a diehard fan of X team and you want to watch everything, you have to be subscribed. So I don't know. I guess I'm talking completely from the standpoint of not knowing what the numbers are or how how successful it has been, but that transition to get more people signed up that way was not like instant. It's not like, okay, well every, the 3 million people who consistently are viewers of, of English premiership soccer in Canada have all signed up simultaneously through the streaming platform. But I'm sure maybe over time, obviously they have gained a bunch. It's like, well, I miss watching that. And this is a really actually easy way of accessing it. I don't have to, PVR it and have it to my TV or whatever it might be. I can access it with anything going anywhere. Probably have access to all games as part of the packaging and bundling. And they've probably seen obviously like no different than Apple TV with the MLS, MLS yeah. investment that they've made, etc. So you're kind of seeing it'd be interesting. It'll be interesting to see how facets of those things get adopted into these. Um, I guess like the big four other sporting organizations or um, leagues in North America over the next five years. Cause I think basically everything's up for the most part in the next five years in relation to broadcast rights and how that's going to change. I think an aggregator has to win here. Yeah. Opinion. You said that before and I, I a hundred percent agree. It is, that is what it's going to come down to. Yeah. I, NFL will go on its own. The other three mini leagues will have to go together and they'll <laughs> mini leagues. They'll have to demand <laughs> Um, positioning by being wrapped around what is the center of sport, which is the NFL mm -hmm. in North America. Mm -hmm. I think even in Canada, the NFL is more popular than the NHL. It's just a behemoth, right? So, I, yeah, I, I, my bet is on this either being won out by Google or Amazon. That's how I view it. And Apple has the money to buy every team, but that doesn't mean that this is beneficial Mm -hmm. to their their overarching strategy yeah. as a hardware first services second business mm -hmm. even as they change services next i just don't think it complements it as well mm -hmm. amazon can justify it i think in a, a number of ways as wanting because they're a logistics company that wants to have people constantly on their website mm -hmm. and it trickles down it's kind of a top of funnel for them mm -hmm. google has youtube and youtube being the de facto number one um, aggregator or app mm -hmm. for entertainment in the world, in my opinion, there's just nothing that comes close to it. I guess TikTok a little, but that has regulatory problems and the ownership issues. Yeah, it's just to me. Yeah, we have two dogs in this race. There, they have the money to buy anything mm -hmm. and spend the money, overspend 
to, to acquire rights yeah. and have existing infrastructure to, yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, the best idea here is Amazon buys ESPN. ESPN aggregates all of the sports. Mm-hmm. Um, Disney goes on on its own, spins out ESPN, mm-hmm. and that's the bundle that wins. Mm-hmm. And it looks increasingly like ESPN is going to continue to lose the economics battle, but they're acquiring. And they're going to offset that with their betting platform. <laughs> I think that's the hope, right? But it'll never be as profitable as every person in America, whether they like it or not, being subscribed to sporting. Yeah. While also extracting it again um, from Comcast and from all of the extra providers, Liber- Liberty, and then also stealing it again from the from the actual purchaser. So in my opinion, that's the way it's going. Yeah. But the only other thing I'll say is the the one thing that sports franchises have going for them, and I equate this to our discussion over the Ottawa Senators sale and the fact that if they, I think if you were just taking an objective person coming in and saying, what do you think this is worth? And it's a team in Ottawa in the fourth biggest North American sporting league probably wouldn't have guessed the amount that it went for. Mm-hmm. There's a finite number of these opportunities to be yeah. a sports owner. So that intangible piece that is like, I just want to say I have it. Yeah. Is always going to be there. Totally. And the, there pe- there's lots of rich people. Yeah. We'd be surprised at how many billionaires there are. Um, so like it's, yeah. I mean, scarcity is a strong driver of value mm-hmm. and, I, I'm not here to say that it's. I did say that we we have seen a peak in sporting franchise valuations, and to an extent, I think that still remains true, whether or not it remains scarce. Yeah. So I think it's like it's funny that I think what I would agree with you on is that it on paper you're. I think I would agree with you 100. percent But until we see it happen in action, because again, even I, on paper, the highest valuations for the Ottawa Senators were never more than. Six hundred fifty, seven hundred million dollars, and and the, va- the ending valuation ended up being a billion. Yeah, I mean that's and another so, hilarious thing about it. I am of the opinion that the, it brings up the bottom end. I'm not sure someone's going to come in and pay fifteen for the Yankees. Mm-hmm. Oh, they probably would. <laughs> but the other thing too that, and you said this before, like we're talking about private operations here. So a lot of this. A lot of this information is very hard to, to verify. Completely. Because it's not based on revenue. Yeah. Was when, it's when, based on ego. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. It, we'll cons- consistently, for sporting fans like us, and I'm sure like a lot of our listeners, I think, and the, and the business of sports, it's just an interesting thing to follow. And uh, this Cuban news has, I think, just hit a lot of people. It, it was unexpected for a lot of people in yeah. that side of the People industry. think he's running for president. Yeah, that was the other thing too. Hey. Like maybe, I guess. He, it would be he has enough of an opinion on everything to be able to and and, and again the and he's a TV star. Confidence. Yes. Well, I mean, who else should we prop up other than our TV stars? There's no one who deserves to be president more than a TV star. The Democratic star. <laughs> if if we didn't have a Democratic president right now, if we were having the debates right now, you'd have The Rock, Mark Cuban. <laughs> Pretty much a bunch of people that have been on Rogan. Uh, and it, uh, it, quite honestly, I think the debate should be hosted there. Why not? Yeah. It, it gets more viewership than in any one of the CNN and Fox News debates. Uh, anyway, um, to wrap that section up, good for him. Mm-hmm. I think what he does matters. 
So uh, I'll be paying attention. To and we'll see if it finalizes, news. obviously. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah. So Cam, tell me about this this new ESG. Yeah, this is just really quick hitter for for companies that um, I guess just meet certain thresholds here. So I, I, I was recently having a conversation with a client about this, and I think a lot of people aren't aren't aware of it. And it's, it doesn't sound like something that you would think most, I would say, quote unquote, owner manager type businesses in Canada would be thinking about. So it's actually in regards to a forced labor in Canadian supply chains bill. So Bill S211. And so I'm just reading this directly from the government website. So the measures introduced through this bill aim to increase industry awareness and transparency and drive businesses to improve practices. So Bill S211 received royal assent on May 11th, 2023, and it's expected to come into force on January 1st, 2024, and contains two parts. So there's a reporting obligation that is, which I just, I guess off the top, say, I don't know what this form looks like or what it is going to be required to be filing. This is actually probably a little bit of a mix, obviously, from a professional services, professional advice standpoint. This is not necessarily something that an accountant like me would do on their daily basis or be part of like our software that as part of my assurance and tax team that we would be looking at, but it's obviously something that affects clients that we're involved with. So that's why we're bringing it up, especially if we're, we're meeting some of the requirements that I'll, I'll go into in a second. It is also a, potentially a legal thing that you'd want to chat with um, a lawyer about as to what it should look like if there's something that you can do from a legal perspective to develop a report that would be attached to something like this if you have to submit something. And so ultimately what it's looking at is, is forced labor involved in the supply chains involved in Canada. So where is your where is your product coming? If you sell product in Canada, manufacture product in Canada, if you import goods into Canada, where is it coming from and are there any issues with the source of, of those goods and the services being provided to produce those goods? And so the requirement is for all public companies listed in Canada, to my understanding, as well as privately owned entities with two of the most or two of the following three criteria for at least one of its two most recent financial years, 20 million or more in assets, 40 million or more in revenue, 250 or more employees. So those three things are not, I'm not saying it's, that's, that's not a huge percentage of small businesses in Canada. And I wouldn't necessarily even say that you are a small business if you're meeting those thresholds per se, but you could be a private company and you could get there decently easy, especially if you have, if you have 20 million or more in assets, I would garner that you potentially might have 40 million or more in revenue. Or if you have 40 million more in revenue, maybe you have 250 more employees, et cetera. So these two, meeting two of those three criteria um, can happen pretty easily. And what I wanted to do today was just highlight this and say, especially those criteria, and, th and start thinking about it and say, you know, maybe I need to talk to my, my advisors and, and see what I need to do here. I would do my own research, obviously, into this through, you know, government websites and, and the information being released. Because, again, it said that this comes into effect January 1st, 2024. The first reporting, what that means is that reporting is required starting in 2024. May 31st, 2024, the, whatever the filing looks like is due. And that relates to the January 1st to December 31st, 2023 calendar year. So this is something that is a compliance matter that could be due very quickly. And like I've said before, the 
penalties for being non-compliant are very, very, very high. So I've seen, I believe this goes. Are they going to pivot on this immediately or 250,000 hope? No, I don't, I don't see them pivoting on this one. But, and so the other thing might be too, that you might say, this doesn't apply to me. I don't source goods. Like I produce everything here. Everything we do is in-house and we sell to, we sell to, you know, to Amazon or we sell to a big pubco as part of, you know, Oil and gas industry would be a great example, obviously, in this province, working for, for Enbridge or whoever. Take your pick. They're, they have a reporting requirement, and they're going to be asking questions to you as part of their supply chain. So you have to be ready to potentially be filling some of this stuff out, and this is potentially what it relates to if they're asking. Like there, There's multiple ESG measures in this country, but this would be potentially one of the reasons why they're asking some of these questions. So, again, I just wanted to quickly highlight it. I I'll be honest and say I don't have enough information to 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 know the specifics of what the reporting is going to look like and or whether or not there is other things within the weeds of the bill that would exempt certain companies from having to do these filings. But again, if with those thresholds in mind, if that applies to you, at least make a phone call and have a conversation and, and see because you don't you don't want to potentially miss something like this again from a compliance standpoint, because the penalties are, are very, very, very punitive. Just want to bring that up again. I, I, I feel like I'm talking about something regulatory every other week and the amount of information. Yeah, what's going sharing, on here? Well, it, it is, there's a, a vast amount of opinions on as to why a lot of this information reporting is being required. And all right, give me the craziest. <laughs> well, wealth tax. Mm discussions um so obviously that wouldn't relate to what i just talked about no. at all but some of the other information like where things who's involved in things mm. who's so security so like like trust I, I talked previously about like trust reporting that's required like tr- it's like trust transparency reporting who's who's involved in these trusts we want the information like so again no tax liability is associated with any of this stuff but it's like we want we want the, we want all the information. We want all the SIN numbers. We want all of the. We want to confirm that all these people are Canadian residents, and if they're not, like, who are they? Who's involved? What's what? Couldn't they just ask for Trudeau and Morneau's trust information? <laughs> so I, I, yeah, I get it. I, I don't. I, I don't feel comfortable actually. Like, so again, fencing, but I don't feel comfortable saying like what the true motivation is around some of these things. But the fact that the ability for, obviously from our technology capabilities now to see that these properties in Alberta are owned by Mm. these companies or in trust with this or whatever. And it's like, okay, well maybe we want more, we want more information on that. It's very limited probably what's in registries and what's available. And so we know that there is a business number or a social insurance number or something like that attached to something but we want to get we want to garner more and more and more so it's what they're going to do with all that information it's probably up for debate pile it up in a room and then <laughs> yeah. hopefully somebody well that was like, like this underused analysis. housing tax thing obviously didn't work out super well as i as i talked about previously but the sometimes it's like they they release some of these programs or release some of these requirements and then like to your point they scale things back because they realize okay well that that net that we cast was way too broad and it's giving us either terrible public sentiment because everyone's ticked Annoyed. off about it 
or it's you know from a processing standpoint it's way too much and it's, it's not giving us what we actually want or what yeah the, which I, you'd think they'd think about more ahead of time but again a lot of these things are are pushed through given royal scent because of their the the rhetoric behind it being this is a good thing if we get this information and these people need to be yeah. but then the design of the process is is very very yeah i think it's it's very challenging I th the theoretically data collection is incredibly um alluring mm -hmm. if you're any ent entity you're 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 assuming y y the more data we can collect the better decisions we can make mm -hmm. and the more power we will have mm -hmm. and on the reverse end of that was once you get all of that information what do you do with it mm -hmm. so the highest compensated people inside of the seven biggest companies on earth are generally data analysts and computer scientists that are able to then create product yeah and make decisions based on all of this data and they can't afford those people yeah the the quality scientists in this in this field to yeah. even come close to it to to think about what you would have to pay for someone who could sort through that data, make it actionable, you'd likely have to pay them upwards of $100 million a year. And that's not even an exaggeration. I'm not even kidding. The total comp packages for a regular engineer at a AI startup or a big, big seven, big six tech company is $5 million plus a year. That's not an exaggeration. That's what they're, they're demanding. So to be a 10x or 100x person in this position, yeah. So somebody at Google who is their best data engineer, you think that that person doesn't make as much or more than the current CEO? You're kidding yourself. Mm. They are the LeBron James of their fields, but their <laughs> field is actually worth more money. Yeah. So I think they're, 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 you know what, without the talent, it's unlikely to do anything. It'll just be annoying for the businesses having to yeah. do it. I think, I think the other thing too, and in regards to the, garnering of information is, and I truly do believe this, is that they're trying to make, I think if you want to call it like G7 countries or just like the most developed countries in the world, trying to create more of a level playing field too. What I, in our lifetime, not sure what this would look like, but just in terms of like more consistency from a, from a tax perspective across multiple jurisdictions and getting more information from taxpayers in or companies registered or companies operating in Canada. Some of it actually falls on individuals as well, but getting more information on that and understanding are ever, is that, are people paying their fair share? And it's, I think more of it is again on companies that might not be paying like again, multinational companies not paying enough in Canada. Cause I think they want to avoid increasing taxes on the individuals because they know what that like we're already at a high number in this mm -hmm. country and pushing that even further is probably not great for the relationship between the voter and the, well, and the government it, right? it's it's very similar to what uh donald trump did at, at the beginning of his his uh, his um 2016 run not run but rather his presidency when he repatriated all that cash that was was in was in yeah. um ireland i was gonna say from the from the pers giving the rhetoric or the perspective of like in that case like America first, uh -huh. like that was aligned with that, bringing it home. Yeah, right. He didn't tax it. No, but but it had a lot to do with bring that money here, stop spending it overseas. Mm -hmm. America first. And while I, I could see being associated with Donald Trump, that sounds like a bad thing. All of that, but it's the idea of the it. idea. It yeah. still stands at being. I think 
it makes a lot of sense from an American's view. There's a way to stand on a leg with that argument. Yeah, exactly. So if you were a large multinational that was holding, let's say, four or five or ten billion dollars in cash or capital, and and you have a fake head office or in in Ireland because they have zero percent corporate tax rate, yeah. and Canada said, "Well, I found your money. I know where you're holding it." I'd like for you to bring it back. That'll be 32% or 28% or whatever the going corporate tax rate is, 23, 25, I don't know. Anyway, um, if that's the case, well, yeah, of course they're gonna leave it there. I don't care if you found it. They might give you a hard time, but maybe we could be, all right, bring that back, invest it in, in our country. There might be a platform to run there. Um, I don't think we have the yeah. multinationals that the Americans do. They don't have Apple with hundreds of billions of dollars elsewhere. Mm -hmm. They don't have the Microsofts and the Facebooks that are domiciled in the United States and also their Europe, European operations domiciled in, mm -hmm. in, in Ireland. But I, I think that there's something to be said. Yeah, and I, I honestly don't, I don't necessarily disagree with, again, if you're, if you're profiting and, and operating in Canada and skirting some loophole that prevents you from having to pay tax here and potentially paying a lot less somewhere else or whatever it might be, I'm fine with them redesigning that where the country in which you're operating in receives compensation mm -hmm. in the form of tax for that. Totally. And anything that they can do to av avoid having to raise the raise the compliance needs of of the the common man, common woman or the or the the tax rates on those folks, I'm all for that because that's what's I think again we don't want this to macro things affecting you know the people who pay the bulk of taxes in this country, country. Exactly. are the people that earn the income between the you're in the 80th percentile to 99th percentile yeah they pay for everything <laughs> yeah so the lion's share of everything so i i would i would um I would, thanks for bringing that up i just wanted to yeah quick obviously we went off on a bit of more of a tangent there but again if you misheard me i guess rewind a little bit and and listen to those Listen to those those thresholds or those eligibility requirements for this bill S two eleven. And again, it's not something that's going to be on the radar for a lot of folks, um, and it's not going to apply to a lot of folks probably either. But there is going to be the odd person, and it's it's worth just having the conversation to to not miss on that. Anyone so, importing, exporting, it's obviously yeah, very important. Yeah, the the requirements on like from the what you do as a business, it's really easy to fall into those. And then obviously the dollar threshold things is something different. But again, you might not fall under those dollar thresholds, but if you're part of a supply chain that has someone that does, they might be asking you questions, right? Yeah. So it's like you supply somebody else in Alberta. Let's say like you source some stuff, you're below the threshold, but you source some stuff, you buy some stuff. You can be a cabinet maker. 100%. That's not even a joke. Like you yeah. could be bringing it in your cabinetry materials from Asia. Yeah. And you are going to have, you're going to be, mm -hmm running into this problem potentially like it, it's i'd be interested to know obviously that there'd be dollar thresholds that apply throughout the chain but at the same time again just being aware of it and understanding that there might be a requirement either for yourself to file or for you to provide information to someone who files so so i got some recommended reading let's do it so the i think everyone in alberta should be paying attention to the the current um battle between our provincial government and the federal government mm -hmm. and the sovereignty act that was enacted by by daniel smith and the cpc let's be clear or we don't know CPC, if that holds up in court UCP. yet 
No, we don't. So. <laughs> um, I think that this just is something that has be has increasingly the the heat has been turned up, mm-hmm. and they're going to war on this, and it's going to be interesting how it rolls out. I have no prediction here, but I think that every Albertan should be paying attention to that. We also I think have, the one thing too on that front is I I do Alberta is going to take the lion's share of attention with this. Of course, I think there's a lot of provinces, other provinces that are taking a peek over their shoulders yeah. saying if this works, because I mean. At the end of the day, what this is, this can be marketed as a few different things, I, I think, or, or perceived as a couple different things. But it's, you know, bringing power on things that Alberta believes, other provinces probably believe, should be their decision to make as a jurisdiction versus the federal government and the overreach that they have. And so that, that's really where it's coming, you know, constitutional questions over who well, gets to decide on these things. We were complaining about pipelines the other direction. Exactly. Where the federal government wasn't forcing pipelines through provinces yeah. in which we don't have control over. Yeah. So again, pay attention to it. Uh, second thing, the budget. So it sounds like we're going to run close to a $6 billion surplus this year. I think 5.8 or 5.6. Alberta, to be clear. Alberta. Yeah. <laughs> I say we, the proverbial we. Um, I didn't really contribute much to that. The, <laughs> um, But yeah, interesting to see. I A lot of um, conservatives are talking about their their fiscal responsibility in this 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 surplus like come on people maybe the price of oil has a little bit to do with this and that has nothing to do with our fiscal responsibility i implore albertans to look at the budget look at then the the spending of the last year uh it's my understanding that the 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 fire flood and uh, disaster mitigation was a huge line item this year and uh, actually retracted from mm. what would likely have been a much larger surplus. So you go and take a look. Don't just listen, oh, wow, it's positive. That was good. I want to see, was it truthfully, uh, uh, were they spending responsibly? Yeah, I don't buy it just it? because it was high. Because yeah. the year before this was $16 billion. So where'd that 10 go? Huh? huh? Inflation. Huh? <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. But uh, that's my recommended reading. That'll be in the newsletter. And I'll, I'll throw that and a few other things, whether it be the carbon capture link that I got from um, Mel Coet's newsletter, actually. Shout out. Shout out there. You got anything? Well, just on the opposite front of Ottawa and Alberta actually coming together on a project. So this was definitely the last couple of days in the news. So uh, Daniel Smith and Christia Freeland announced an $8.9 billion investment by Dow into the province's industrial heartland on Wednesday. So Fort Saskatchewan. Sask. Represent yep. will be home to Dow's Path to Zero facility, the world's first net zero scope one and two greenhouse gas emissions integrated ethylene cracker and derivative site. Do you know what that means? Because I don't, but it sounds great. Well, it sounds big, and it's it's supposed to add what they're mentioning six thousand jobs over the mm, over the time period of of the construction, of the yeah. construction, and then four to five hundred full times one full time positions, which is the size of Shell, I think, to an extent. Um, this is huge. Mm-hmm. I have been ultra bullish Fort Saskatchewan for 24 <laughs> months at least right now. Yeah. Um, as someone who was born there, not necessarily raised there, I, I have a special place in my heart for there. I am, just so everyone realizes this, when Joel was going through that, he has to stay, because he grew up in Sherwood Park, and Sherwood Park is obviously, for those that don't know the area, viewed as hoity-toity, and Fort Saskatchewan would be very blue collar. And so he always identifies to say that he is more of a blue collar person because he had the hard time of 
up before Saskatchewan. And I'm working there for a number of years. Hard time. I wouldn't say hard, but nonetheless, <laughs> I'm excited for the for the. It city. seasoned you. Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> it's it's made me modestly more blue collar than I am today, <laughs> with my turtleneck on. Um, Cam, thanks for coming in. See you next week.